I think you know the game Marco Polo, right? Uh, you've, you've, you, you, you know the game I'm talking about. It's, it's played in a pool, and you have a group of children, and one child will close their eyes, and they will say, Marco, and then they will listen for the voices of the other children, and the other children will say, Polo, and then they will move in that direction. You're, it's, a, it's a pool game. It's a, it's a children's pool game, Marco Polo. You're familiar with it. Yes. Okay, good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, today, as we consider the biblical doctrine of encouragement, I pray that you would enable me, Lord, to be encouraged by you, by your spirit. I pray, Lord, that this would not just be me, uh, Lord, telling these people what I know, uh, but Lord, I pray that I would be enjoying you as I preach. I pray that I would be delighting in you. I pray that I would be leaning upon you and relying upon your spirit, that you, Lord, would please encourage me. Lord, help me today to convey what this means, but help me, Lord, uh, more than that, Lord, uh, to be able to equip and to enable these people, Lord, not just to understand it, but to leave and to go from this place being encouragers. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 2008, Anna and I sent our son Parker from our home in Georgia to our home in New York to live in Georgia to live a year with his grandparents. And we did this for two reasons. First of all, so that he could gain Georgia state residency, become a resident of the state of Georgia, and then go as an in-state resident to the University of Georgia, which was his goal, and that is exactly what he did. The second reason why we did this is so that he could play football one year. He had never played football. He loved football as a homeschooler in New York City. He did not have the opportunity to do that, and so he wanted to play football for one year. When he got there, he realized that it was a little bit harder than he thought it was going to be, and he became discouraged. And so, as a good father, I purchased for him three used, inexpensive DVDs and mailed them all to him at the same time, and they were Rocky, Rudy, and the Pursuit of Happiness. Rocky, Rudy, Pursuit of Happiness. If you haven't seen these movies, you only need to watch one of them because they are all the same movie. Uh, and they're all good movies, but it is the story of someone who is an underdog, someone who is not encouraged from the outside, someone who is forced to pick themselves up by their own bootstraps and to press on Rocky, Rudy, The Pursuit of Happiness. Unfortunately, in the church, we sometimes treat one another as if the other person is Rocky Balboa, that they will be self-motivated, that they don't need any encouragement from the outside, that they ought to be able just to propel themselves. Well, God in his wisdom knew that we needed more than that. And so he has given us a command, he has given us an imperative from his word that we are to be encouraging one another and to be building one another up. With that said, would you please turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians? I'm going to be covering today 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. Here's what the Word of God says. For God has not destined us for wrath, but, by contrast, to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, that's just a euphemistic way of saying dead or alive, whether we are 
awake or asleep, we might live with him. Now, here's what it says. Therefore, in light of that, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. All right, let's go through this text piece by piece. The first thing that I want you to note from this text is that in order uh, that when one is encouraging, they are actually godly. Uh, The reason I say that is because God, our Heavenly Father, is encouraging. In Romans chapter 15, verse 5, the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, is known as the God of endurance and encouragement. So when you encourage others, you are being like God. You are also like the third person of the Trinity. Jesus, when he was speaking to his disciples in the upper room, Uh, on the night in which he was betrayed, talked about the comforter that would come. Uh, The word that is used there for comforter or helper is the word paraclete or parakletos. And the Greek word for encourage is parakaleo, which, by the way, is the correct, incorrect uh, Greek pronunciation of that word, parakaleo, paraklete. So to be like God is to encourage. The other thing that I want you to notice from this text is that it is very ironic how Paul presents it. Not only does he command them to encourage one another, but please notice that in the process of telling them to encourage one another, he encourages them. Look at the last phrase. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. And then he puts this little tag on, just as you are doing. I want you to be encouraging to other people, but I also want you to know that you're already doing a great job at it. So what is that? Well, that is encouragement. But the main thing that I want you to see in this passage, which is more important than anything else that I'm going to say this morning, in fact, it is more important than anything that you will ever hear in your life, and that is what propels and what drives the doctrine of encouragement is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The passage does not say, encourage one another and build one another up. There is a therefore which comes before encourage one another and build one another up. And what is it that is the motive or what is it that drives this? Well, he starts off by saying that God has not destined us for wrath. Um, There are some people who will be in hell, but Paul says you are not among those people. God has not destined you, his children, for wrath. But by contrast, you are going to obtain salvation. And how is that salvation going to come? It is going to come through the second person of the Trinity, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what was it that our Lord Jesus Christ did so that we might obtain salvation? Verse 10, our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. That is the gospel, and as you know, and you well know, it is the gospel that it is is of first importance. You are not able to save yourself. You are not going to go to heaven because you are good. The reason why you are saved is because the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, in love, came from heaven to earth, lived for you, and died in your place, died for you on the cross, was raised again on the third day, and is alive today. We are saved through the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, in other words, circumstances then really don't matter. Uh, we are going to die, uh, but at this point, it really doesn't matter one way or another. Why? Because ultimately, we are going to live with him. Uh, we have seen the final scene of the movie. We have read the final chapter. We are going to be with him because he died for us. And so therefore, in light of the fact that we ultimately are going to be with him because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore, therefore, in light of that, encourage one another and build one another up. You see, ultimately, when Christians speak to one another, we can encourage one another regardless of what the circumstances are. In fact, everything ultimately for a Christian ultimately is encouraging because ultimately we are all going to be with him. Uh, conversely, I don't know that you actually can ultimately say anything which would be encouraging to someone who ultimately will be damned. Anything that you would say is just temporary. It's just for the here and now. Uh, what do you say to a person who forever is going to be in hell, which would be of any encouragement to, to them? So I, I say all of this to, to really stress this point. The biblical doctrine of encouragement is not just a pep talk. It is rooted in the gospel. And Anything which we give to one another by way of encouragement which is not rooted in the gospel is nothing more than a pep talk or how to win friends and influence people or a halftime speech or basically a, a, a Tony Robbins seminar. You're, you're, you're learning how to give someone a pat on the back. You're motivating them. You're, you're pushing them to press on. You're telling them that they will catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. But that's not really the biblical doctrine of encouragement. The biblical doctrine of encouragement is based upon the fact that our sins are forgiven and that we are going to be in heaven. And so therefore, I think Fanny Crosby had it right when she wrote the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And you remember in that hymn, there's this line, which I always thought to be a hokey line, which says, we should never be discouraged. And I thought, well, you know, sometimes you really do get discouraged, but I think Fanny got it right. Because of what we have in the Lord, we really never should be discouraged. I mean, objectively, look at what we have. Look at what we have. You are forever going to be with Jesus in heaven. Your sins, which were many, are gone. I mean, they are completely gone. We can't find them anywhere. They are completely gone and erased. You have been joined to the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. You have been joined to the Father. You've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You have a Bible. You have the church. You have the fruit of the Spirit. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You have joy, which comes from being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We should never be discouraged. So why, if we should never be discouraged, would God, in his wisdom, give a command to his people to encourage one another? Why, why is this commanded? Well, it's commanded because we are not yet with the Lord, and we live in a fallen world, and we 
are living in a world which tries very hard and usually is very successful in discouraging us. I mean, what are some of the reasons why people are discouraged? Well, the first reason and the main reason why you are discouraged is because you live with you. And you are a liar. And you tell lies to yourself, things which are not spiritually true. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And so as you are having conversations with yourself, by nature you are not saying things to yourself which are true. Uh, Also, you live in a discouraging world. I mean, we're here today. Uh, This house today is 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 packed we this is not legal uh, how many people are here isn't it wonderful we are we're like packed in here and we're singing the praises of god and we're enjoying one another and then we're going to leave here and what's going to happen tomorrow morning is you are going to go to your job and the person who is working right beside you is going to be taking the lord's name in vain or they're going to be talking about women in a demeaning way or they are just going to be giving no regard for the lord at all and that's going to have a discouragement impact upon your soul or you're going to turn on the television and it really doesn't matter what network you're watching you are going to be discouraged by that or you're just going to be out in among people and you're just going to be surrounded and encompassed by sin in every direction that is going to have a discouraging impact upon you some of you are discouraged maybe because you're going through physical sickness some of you are are discouraged maybe because things are tough financially. Maybe you don't have a job and maybe you don't have any prospects for a job or maybe you do have a job but ends are not meeting. That can be discouraging. Or maybe you are discouraged simply because the devil is attacking you. We do have an adversary, the devil, roaming about, seeking whom he may devour. And so there are many reasons why, whether it is your family or the media or the people that you work with, or whether it is sickness or whether it is depression, just this nebulous thing called depression, which if you've never had it, uh, I I hope that you never do get it, but I have been depressed before and I can tell you that it is excessively discouraging. I think Job had it, got it right when he said that man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. And so for these reasons and for many other reasons, we need to be encouraging one another because we live in a discouraging world. We have no excuse, no valid excuse to be discouraged, but the fact of the matter is we do get discouraged. So it's a very simple sermon. This is not theologically complex. Why, if we need encouragement and we are commanded to encourage one another, why do we not do it more? Well, for some people, it is easier than others. Um, I think one reason why people do not encourage one another is because they themselves have never been encouraged. For those of you that have known me for years, you know this illustration that I am about to give you, but I will repeat it because I think it is, it is really worthy of remembering. About 22 years ago, I was preaching a sermon from the Gospel of Matthew at North Shore Baptist Church. My son Parker was eight or nine years old, and I wanted to illustrate, I think the text that I was preaching on that morning had to do with, with the love that God the Father has for his son, Jesus Christ. And so, as to illustrate that point, I brought my son Parker up on the stage, and I said to Parker, Parker, I want you to know I love you, and, and 
I am so pleased with you and I want these people to know that I love you and that I am pleased with you. And then he sat down and I preached the sermon and I didn't think another thing about the illustration. It was just a small portion of the sermon. Didn't think another thing of it. And there was a lady who, when I was standing at the door, I was shaking hands with people as they left. And um, this lady was a very uh, faithful member of our church. She has long ago gone home to be with the Lord. Uh, This is a woman that was uh, usually not very emotional, but tears were running down her her cheeks, and she said, Pastor, when you brought that boy up on stage and you told him that you loved him, that broke my heart. Now, this was a woman that was in her mid-80s. She said, that broke my heart because my mother and my father lived and died, and neither one of them ever once ever told me that they loved me. So you can understand where it would be difficult for you to be an encourager to others if you have never been encouraged yourself. Uh, Others do not encourage because they are in so much pain. Uh, They are suffering, and, and they're just thinking about what they themselves are going through. To you, I would say, remember the Lord Jesus Christ, for never has anyone been in more pain than the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he was hanging upon the cross for those six hours, he used what few words he could speak in order to encourage. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son. John, take care of your mother here. And so Jesus, in pain, used his words to encourage. Uh, Others do not encourage because it's not natural to them. They would think that if they did it, it would be sort of out of character. Uh, Others don't do it because they have seen abuses, with encouragement. They've seen it used in the form of flattery or manipulation, and so they don't want any part of that. Uh, Others don't encourage because they are just so self-consumed. They have nothing against encouraging other people. They just never think about other people. They are only thinking about themselves. Others don't encourage because they are jealous. For if I encourage you, I am acknowledging that you are doing something better than me, and I cannot do that. My pride will not allow me to do that. There are a million reasons why people do not encourage. But let's get right to the point. The point is we shouldn't be discouraged, but we do get discouraged, and we are commanded to encourage one another, but for many reasons we do not. What I would like to do is I would like to encourage you to encourage, and one of the ways that I would like to do that is to show you what it looks like from the Bible, give you a biblical illustration. And it comes from the book of Acts. There's a man that we meet in the book of Acts by the name of Joseph. He shows up in chapter 4, verse 36, although you probably don't know him by the name of Joseph. Uh, That's his given name. But he was given another name, a nickname, by the apostles. And the name that he was given was Barnabas, which by definition means son of encouragement. And how did Barnabas demonstrate encouragement? Well, there were four ways at least that we see, at least four ways in the book of Acts that he demonstrated encouragement. First of all, 
This is, a, this is a man, he's born on the island of Cyprus, he is a Levite, he moves to Jerusalem, he becomes a Christian, and obviously he becomes wealthy because he buys a piece of property in Jerusalem. And there was trouble at that time uh, financially in the church, and so what he did is he sold that property, took the money, laid it at the apostles' feet, Money can be a form of encouragement. I'll, I'll talk about that later. But he's encouraging to the church in that he takes the entire cost of the property and gives it to the church. Secondly, it was what, with his relationship with the Apostle Paul. Uh, in those days, he was uh, better known as Saul of Tarsus. He was a Christ-hater and a Christian killer. He was on his way to Damascus in order to arrest Christians to bring them back to Jerusalem so that they might be tried, so that they might be executed. And you know the story of how Saul of Tarsus was converted on the road to Damascus. He sees the bright light. He hears the voice, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He goes into Damascus. Ananias prays for him. He receives his sight. And then for three years, Paul is by himself in Arabia, not Saudi Arabia, but Arabia near Damascus. And after three years, Paul wants to reconnect with the church in Jerusalem. So Paul comes back to Jerusalem, and when he gets there, they do not receive him. They do not actually believe that he is converted. They think it is a trick that he's trying to infiltrate so that he might arrest them, so that they might be executed. And so what happens? How does Paul gain an audience with the church in Jerusalem? Well, we read in Acts chapter 9, it was the son of encouragement, the biblical doctrine of encouragement. It is Barnabas who goes to the church and to the apostles and says, he is one of us. He is the real deal. He has seen the Lord. Trust him. Believe that he is one of us. And as a side note, having nothing to do with my sermon this morning, please know that if you ever go to join a church and you are sitting in front of the elders doing your membership interview, and if you are rejected from membership, please know that the greatest Christian who ever lived the first time he ever tried to join a church was turned away, so don't take it personally. We don't always get it right. Sometimes we get it wrong. Back to the sermon. Barnabas, through the doctrine of encouragement, sees to it that Paul is accepted in the church in Jerusalem. And he comes in, and for two weeks, he preaches with the authority of the local church there in Jerusalem. There's a third example, and this is the clearest definition of encouragement, and that is that he goes to Antioch. Now, why did Barnabas go to Antioch? Well, you remember in Acts chapter 7 that Stephen is stoned. And when Stephen is stoned, the church is scattered. And they go a lot of different places. One of the places that they went was to Antioch. And when they were in Antioch, there was a church there. That church was growing. And so the apostles said, hey, we need to see if what is happening in Antioch is the real deal. And so they send a representative from Jerusalem to Antioch. And who do they send? They send the son of encouragement, Barnabas. And when he gets there in Acts eleven twenty three, it says that he saw the grace of God. He was happy in his heart. And then he said something, and that he spoke encouraging words to them. And I think that really is, in a nutshell, what encouragement is. You see the grace of God. 
It makes you happy. It causes you to rejoice. And then out of the overflow of your heart, you say something. And so here's this representative coming from Jerusalem to Antioch saying, you guys are the real deal. I see the grace of God. Wow, I'm really happy about this. Press on. Press on in the Lord. The fourth example of encouragement maybe is the one that you know the best. And that is that in that church in Antioch, there were two missionaries that were called by the Holy Spirit to go out and to be missionaries, and they were who? Saul and Barnabas. And so in Acts chapter 13, they take off, and there's a young man that goes with them on the journey. His name is Mark, or John Mark. And they leave Antioch, they go down to Cyprus, they go across Cyprus, they go up into what we call the Roman region of Galatia, and they're planting churches and they're spreading the gospel and all of a sudden out of nowhere with no explanation whatsoever the word of God says in Acts 13 13 that John Mark quits and he goes home he just quits in the middle of the missionary journey well Paul and Barnabas finish their missionary journey they come back to Antioch they bring the report and then there's some trouble uh, concerning the doctrine of circumcision. So Paul and Barnabas have to go over to Jerusalem and they have to settle that matter, whether Gentiles have to be circumcised or not. And then they come back to Antioch and then they're ministering at Antioch. And one day, Paul says to Barnabas, hey, you know what? We need to go back to Galatia and visit those churches. And Barnabas says, I wholeheartedly agree. Let's go back to Galatia and minister to those churches. Let me get uh, John Mark, so that he can go with us. And Paul said, no way, uh-uh, he's not coming with us. He quit the first time he was with us, he's not coming back. And the dispute between them was so strong and it was, the, it was so intense that Paul and Barnabas divide from one another. Barnabas takes John Mark with him and he goes back to Cyprus. Paul gets a new missionary partner, which is Silas, and he goes up to Cilicia and then back down into Galatia and they went their separate directions. Now, who was right and who was wrong in this? Well, I'm not really here to decide that for you today. I will say that if I had to decide, I think at the time Paul was probably the one that was right. The reason I say that is because Luke, the author of Acts, follows Paul. Secondly, the scripture says that Paul and Silas were the ones who were commended to the grace of God. But that's not really the point I'm trying to make right now. The point that I want you to see is that when Paul gets to the end of his life, and he is in a dungeon in Rome writing the last book that he has ever written, which is 2 Timothy, in the last chapter of that book, he only asks for one person to come and visit him. And he writes to young Timothy and he says, bring John Mark, bring Mark with you, for he is profitable to me for ministry. What was it that caused Paul from his time in the book of Acts, chapter 15 and 16, to not want to take John Mark at all, now to request him by name and not only say that he is profitable, but he is profitable to me for ministry. What happened in the life of John Mark? I'll tell you exactly what happened. Someone came alongside him, and that was Barnabas, the son of encouragement, and he changed from the man that he was, a quitter, to being one that was profitable to Paul for ministry. 
And you say, well, what, what's the big deal here? I mean, okay, what, what did Barnabas really do? What Barnabas did is that he enabled the Apostle Paul to become the Apostle Paul. I don't know about you, but every once in a while, I like to pick up my Bible and read the 13 letters of Paul. But do you understand that the 13 letters of Paul do not exist at all unless Paul is confirmed by the church in Jerusalem? I hope your ecclesiology is good enough to know that you cannot go out by yourself and start a ministry apart from the approval of the local church. Paul did not have the approval of the local church until the son of encouragement came alongside him and went to bat for him so that he could be confirmed by the church in Jerusalem. And every once in a while, I like to pick up the second gospel, the gospel of Mark. Do you understand that the gospel of Mark does not even get written if someone doesn't come alongside Mark and encourage him and disciple him? I mean, think about it. Our Lord, our God, assigned four men, count them, one, two, three, four men, to write an account of Jesus, and one quarter of them, that is Mark, is Mark, and Mark gets to be Mark because Barnabas, the son of encouragement, comes alongside him, doesn't give up on him, goes with him to Cyprus, disciples him to the point where Paul is even asking for him by name at the end of his life. This is an excessively important doctrine. This is so important that we learn to encourage one another and build one another up. So I hope you're following the argument so far. We should never be discouraged. We should never be discouraged, but we are. And so God in his wisdom tells us to encourage one another and to build one another up. We don't do it for a number of reasons. I am trying to convince you now to do it because it is very valuable just looking at the life of Barnabas, how he encouraged others and how he helped to build the church up. So how does this relate to me? Well, I speak now to everyone, but I speak especially to the children at this point. When I was growing up, I was the worst child that I ever knew. And I've known some really bad ones. I've known some really bad ones. I never knew one that was worse than me. Um... My aunt died in 2014, and um, I went to her funeral. And while I was at her funeral, one of my Sunday school teachers was there. And, and my aunt lived to be almost 99. When you live that long, you don't get too many people coming to your funeral. They're all dead. But this lady is still alive, and she sees me in the fellowship hall after the sermon. And so uh, after the service, after the, the funeral, and she sees me. And so she walks over to me, although she doesn't really walk because she can't walk. She just sort of shuffles over to me. And I thought, oh, this is sweet. She's coming over here uh, to, uh, to greet me and just to give me, uh, you know, uh, a word of sympathy in the passing of my aunt. And she looks at me and she says, you are the worst child that ever came to this church. And then you would think that, that there would be a but... 
isn't the grace of God wonderful because you're a pastor now? No, she said, you're, you are the worst child that ever came to this church. And then she just shuffled away. She's using what few steps she has in life to tell me how horrible I was. True story, true story. When I was in sixth grade, you think about education. When I was in sixth grade, this was Mrs. Fischel's desk, and there, there were the students, and they were lined up in their desks facing her, and my desk was right beside hers facing the rest of the students. Why? Because I could not be released into general population. I mean, I really, I was, I was uncontrollable. I was, I was horrible. I mean, I was really horrible. And I have many other stories time won't allow. But something happened to me when I was 16 years old. And that is that even though I had been raised in a Christian home, I did not have a heart of love for Jesus Christ. And then one day, out of nowhere, the gospel became clear to me and I was given a love for Jesus Christ. And when I was given this love for Christ, when God converted me, I wanted nothing more than Christ. All I wanted to do was read my Bible and to sing hymns and to go to church and to be with the people of the church. And more than anything else, I wanted to serve the Lord. I was totally consumed, totally obsessed with Jesus Christ in the church. That's all I wanted. My heart was on fire for Christ. But I had a problem, and my problem was I was Eddie Moore, and no one took me seriously, and there was no encouragement coming my way at all, except for one guy. His name was Jerry Hoover. He was a hippie, not a hipster with skinny jeans and pour over coffee, but he was a hippie with ratty hair and real torn jeans. He was part of the Jesus movement. And when he got saved out of his debaucherous life, his wife left him immediately and he was left to raise his own, raise his two children. And, and we didn't have in the 1970s anything like a youth pastor in Western Pennsylvania, but he was the 1977 equivalent of a youth pastor, and here's what he did for me. No seminary degree, no Bible college training. Here's what he did for me. He loved me. He prayed with me. He prayed for me. When I would call him, he would pick up the phone. He would teach me. He would encourage me. He would rebuke me. He would disciple me. He just came alongside me and was my friend and helped me in the things of the Lord. I can remember the date, uh, the setting. I, it, was, it was Thursday, February 2nd, 1978. I was, I was a wrestler in high school. That was, my, that was my sport. On that particular night, I was going to wrestle Frank Veraschetti from Brockway. He's an Italian kid, really strong. His dad was a garbage man. And I was very nervous about the match that night. And so on that Thursday afternoon, I picked up the phone and I called Jerry. And do you know what he did? He answered the phone. And I said, Jerry, I'm very nervous about this match tonight. And he said, take your Bible and turn to John chapter 14, verse 27. And so I picked up my Bible and I opened it and I read the words of Jesus where he said, peace I leave with you. My peace give I unto you. Not as the world gives give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. 
Now, I understand that if I were to meet Jerry today, we probably would be in different galaxies theologically. And I understand that what he did was just a, it, it, it was a hermeneutical disaster. I understand that in the upper room discourse, Jesus was not thinking about a wrestling match that was going to happen at the end of the 20th century. But I didn't know that then. And what I do know is that for the last 43 years, every time that I have been nervous or distraught or worried or uncertain about what was going to happen, I, in my mind, have gone to John 14, 27. But more important than that, what I have done for the last 43 years, every time I have been distraught, I have gone to Jesus Christ, who said, peace I leave with you. And why did I do that? Why do I do that? I do that because Jerry Hoover exercised the biblical doctrine of encouragement pointing me to Christ. You don't have to be an officer in the church. You don't have to have gone to seminary. You don't need anything at all to point people to Jesus Christ and to be an encouragement to them. And so I want to encourage you to encourage one another. Now remember, this is not a pep talk. This is not a pat on the back. This is not a halftime speech. This is anchored in the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died for us. We're not going to obtain wrath, but we are going to obtain salvation. This is anchored in the fact that whether you're dead or whether you're alive, you're gonna be with the Lord. This is anchored in the gospel. But based upon that gospel, let me give you a few practical points of application on how you might practically minister and encourage one another. Number one, pray with one another. Pray with one another. I did not say pray for one another, although you must pray for one another, but there is a difference between praying for someone and praying with them. Um, as a pastor, uh, it has been my job to go into hospitals and to visit people and to pray with them uh, either before or after surgery or whenever, whatever the need is. And I always thought, why am I doing this? I mean, what difference does this make? I mean, I know it's part of my job description. I'm happy to do it, but I'm not really seeing how it helps anybody. I didn't really see that until I myself was in need of prayer. Ten years ago, March the 8th, 2011, I had a hip replacement at Mount Sinai in the city. And, and like a fool, on the night before my surgery, I watched a YouTube video of a hip replacement. You, you don't need to do that. You, you, don't, you don't ever need to see what they're doing. But it's, it's brutal. It's gruesome. They, they, they cut you open, and then they take out a saw, and they saw off your, your, your femur. I mean, it is, it, you don't need to be looking at this. And so even though I remember John 14, 27, I'm still a little bit distraught going into the surgery. And I can remember uh, I, I'm alm it's almost time for me to be taken in and cut open. And thankfully... What they do, I don't know if you've ever had surgery, but they will come to you about six or seven times and they will say, what are we doing today just to make sure that you are the right person and they are doing the right thing. And so my last interview in this cold little cubicle right outside the operating room 
a man comes in, he says, what's your name? I said, Edwin Moore, what are we doing today? You're replacing my right hip, good, would you please point to your right hip? Yes, this is my right hip. Where do you work? I said, North Shore Baptist Church. And he paused, he said, you're a pastor? I said, yes. He said, hold on one second. <clears throat> he steps outside the cubicle and he motions for a nurse to come. The nurse walks over and he whispers to her and he says, he's a pastor. And she, I can still see her, like Moses, looking one direction and the other, <clears throat> steps inside the cubicle, pulls the curtain closed, walks over to me, and she says, Pastor, let me pray for you. And she comes over and she puts her hand on my head and her hand on my shoulder, and she gets down in my ear, and she pours out her heart to God for me. And it was like someone had taken <clears throat> a bucket of warm water and had poured it over my head, <clears throat> and the peace of God that passes all understanding was guarding my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. And it was then that I realized the value of praying with someone. When you see someone that's hurting, you should be saying to them, hey, I hope things turn out for you. I will be praying for you. And I hope things do turn out for them. And I hope that you will be praying for them. But it is infinitely more valuable for you to say, hey, step aside here for a second. Let me just pray with you for a second. You don't know what an encouragement that can be until you are the one that is being prayed for. So <clears throat> pray, pray for one another. Number two, <clears throat> give one another <clears throat> gospel reminders. You say, well, shouldn't this be assumed? Shouldn't people like know that <clears throat> the gospel is, is of first importance and they would remember it? Sometimes when I preach, I will ask my family, how was the sermon? And they'll say, well, Dad, it was, it was okay. It was pretty good. I mean, you were true to the text, but you forgot the gospel. Forgot the gospel. It's my job to remember the gospel. If I, as a preacher of the gospel, sometimes forget to preach the gospel in a setting where the design is to preach the gospel, how much more will people who are going through a lot of stress or anxiety or trouble forget the gospel? Remember what Mike Tyson said. Uh, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And when you get punched in the mouth, the first thing that comes to mind is not the gospel. And so what we need to do for one another by way of encouragement is to say, all right, listen, let's focus. You got a tough situation here, all right? And, and we're, gonna, we're gonna work on doing some things to, to help you get out of the tough situation, but let's get a big picture perspective here. God loves you. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus died for you. You are going to be in heaven Let's keep that in focus. You can really encourage one another by giving one another gospel reminders. Here's another one. You can encourage one another by helping one another financially. So in 1991, my wife was pregnant with, with our first son. Uh, I was working renting apartments for $5 an hour. Uh, we were really poor. We were really poor. And I was driving this car, 
It was a 1976 Buick Skylark. It was a car of which my father said, Ed, take this car, wash it, and then burn it. It's not even worthy of burning. You need to wash it first. I mean, I was, I was really poor. And, and one of the deacons at our church, his name was Eric Slagle, he called me up and he said, I need to borrow your car. And I'm thinking, wow, how hard up would somebody need to be that they're borrowing my car? And he comes by on his lunch hour and he picks up my car and he comes back an hour and a half later and my car has four new tires on it. And I wept. That was 30 years ago. As long as I have my mind, no matter how long I live, I will remember those four tires. You have no idea what an encouragement that was to me. I, I couldn't have afforded tires at that time in my life. The fact that he did that for me, it was such an encouragement to my heart. Here's another one, and everybody can do this, and that is greet one another. Uh, first of all, it is a biblical commandment. It is a biblical commandment to greet one another. You don't know what a difference simply meeting someone at the church and saying hello to them is going to have. Uh, uh, let me really drive this point home to you, given the fact that you're not going to be meeting here much longer, but you are going to be, you're going to be going to a different building, and you're going to be in with a different congregation, and I assume you're going to be getting a lot of visitors, and I don't know this morning exactly who's a visitor and who's, who's a regular, but I just want to say this. The difference between someone coming back and not coming back will have more to do usually with how a person is greeted than how good the sermon is. Uh, this past Christmas Eve, I was at a beautiful church in Athens, Georgia. Um, it was packed. And, it was the, and the, the, the presentation of the, uh, the, the Christmas pageant, I mean, it was just glorious. Um, I wouldn't go back. Uh, I walked inside the church, and as I was sitting there waiting for the rest of the family to come in, I sat on a bench, and literally dozens of people walked past me. Not one single person said, said hello. I, I just want to say, brothers and sisters, here's the general rule of thumb, and those of you that are like old-time North Shore Baptist people, you've heard me say this. It really bears repeating, and that is, if you see someone that you don't know, Go up to that person and say, hello, tell them your name, and tell them that you're glad that they are there that day. It could make all of the difference in the world. It is a great encouragement to greet one another, and it is a command from Scripture. Here's another one, and that is visit one another. We live in this technological age where we do most of our communication through text. If you're really warm with someone, you'll send them an email. And if they are your very best friend, you, could actually, you actually have permission to call them. But, but pretty much we are electronically communicating with one another. Let's remember the incarnational aspect of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us that there never will be a substitute for actually getting in your car, going to someone's house, sitting down with them, and 
whatever, whatever kind of ministry <clears throat> is there, whether it's praying with them or just having a conversation with them, visiting people is, is a great form of encouragement. Two more, two more. <clears throat> Number one, if you see someone going in the wrong direction, give them correction, give them rebuke. It is a wonderful form of encouragement. When we were living in Columbia, South Carolina, there was a friend of mine who <clears throat> wanted to drive to New York City, and this is before the days of GPS, and he said, how do I get to New York? I said, it's very simple. You get up, you, you go on I-20 going east until you get to I-95. You then go north, drive as far as you can. You will be at the George Washington Bridge. You'll know it when you see it. 20 east, 95 north. And so he gets in his car, and on I-20, and he starts to drive. And he drives, and he drives, and he drives, and he has to use the uh, restroom, so he pulls over at a rest stop. He uses the restroom, gets back on, drives and drives and drives, needs gas, so he gets off, uh, gets gasoline, gets back on I-20, drives and drives and drives, and then he has a conversation with himself, and he says, you know, by now, I ought to have seen I-95. And so he gets off to ask for directions, in Birmingham, Alabama. He had gone three states in the wrong direction. What do you say to someone who is going in the wrong direction? How do you give them encouragement? Well, I'm really proud of you. You're under the speed limit. You have two hands on the wheel. You're using your blinkers. That's, that's, that's not how you encourage that person. You're going the wrong way. Get off, turn around, go back. You see someone in the Christian life that's going in the wrong way. The only form of encouragement that you can give them is to come alongside them and say, this is wrong, this is not right, you are hurting yourself, turn around, go back, repent. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Everything I've said up to this point, everything I've said up to this point in the sermon is just a long preface to this one point. And here's the main thing that I want to tell you today with respect to practical application concerning encouragement, and that is, if you see something, say something. If you see something, say something. About five years ago, I was at a Bible conference. There was a young pastor who was preaching. I sent him a very cold, uh, uh, impersonal text, and it said, hey, good job, I'm proud of you. That was a great word, send. Several months later, I'm with the same pastor at another conference. He preaches again. I send him another text, and I said, hey man, good job today. I was really blessed by that. I'm proud of you. Press on. Send. After that second sermon, he comes up to me and he said, the first time that you sent me that text... I read it to my wife, and the two of us sat there and wept because I have never been told. He said, my father is not a Christian. He said, I have never been told by a Christian man that he was proud of me and that I did a good job. He said, now you've done it for the second time, and I don't have the emotional capacity to handle this. I am not accustomed to anybody telling me that I have done a good job. I am overwhelmed. And I'm saying to myself, why not? Why hasn't somebody said, thank you? Why hasn't somebody said, 
I appreciate that. Why didn't somebody ever say, thank you for the word that you brought today. That fed my soul. Why are we so stingy with our words? What is it about us that we see brothers and sisters going through life, doing things for the glory of God, pressing on, and we just say nothing? When the Bible says, encourage one another and build one another up. It's not going to cost you anything to simply go out of your way when you see something in the kingdom of God, like Barnabas, and then to recognize it as the grace of God. Look, I'm not talking about complimenting people on their looks or on their talent. Because I think when you do something like that, you're not really encouraging them. In fact, it might have a discouraging effect because actually you're causing the person to trust in themselves or to look to themselves. And you're, you're maybe even manipulating that person. I'm talking about when you see something that the grace of God has done to, to, to observe it and to give praise to God, but then to go to that person and to acknowledge you are on the right track. And it doesn't have to be your pastor, although it should be your pastor. How can you listen to a sermon and say nothing? Nothing, as if it didn't even happen. Listen, if you went into um, a diner and, and someone came up to you, and they're not even your waiter or your waitress, they're just kind of the busboy, and they come up with a pitcher of water, and they take your glass of water, and they fill it from half to full. You will turn to that person, and you will say, thank you. How is it that someone for 40 minutes, or in my case, for an hour, preaches the word of God, and you say nothing to that person? Brothers and sisters, if you see something, say something. You see a single mother coming to church, and you know that she's struggling at home. And she comes schlepping into the church with a kid under each arm and, and, and one hanging on her leg. And, and, and is it that hard to say to this woman, listen, I just want you to know I've been watching you and it is a blessing to me that you have been making your way to church every week. Or you see the worship team serving. They were here practicing hard this morning before anybody else arrived. You did a great job this morning. Is it that hard to say something like that? Is it that hard to acknowledge what is going on in someone's life? This week, I got a text from one of your members about a sermon that I preached at North Shore last week thanking me for the message and pointing out one portion of the message about not being ashamed of Jesus. Do you have any idea how encouraging it was to receive a text about something that you preached on a Sunday morning? Do you have any idea how discouraging it is to either serve in the nursery or to serve preaching the word or to serve teaching the word or to serve as the sound man or to serve leading the worship or just to just to make your way through the Christian life and nobody acknowledges it at all. Brothers and sisters, we are to encourage one another and to build one another up in light of the gospel and because of the gospel. But, but here's what's happening in life. You have this church where a bunch of people are are. are They have their eyes closed and they're trying to go in the right direction and they're saying, Marco, 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 and they're not hearing anything. So they just keep pressing on, trying to do the best that they can. Do you know what they need? 
They need you to be saying, Polo, Polo, come on. This is the way you go. This is the right way. No, 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 come on, you're, you're a little bit off. Come back this way. Polo, Polo, if you see something, say something. And I think that the main thing that you can do as you are going into this new church building, merging with this congregation, trying to, to bring unity in the church and to bring one another together is you need to create a culture whereby it is just the normal thing to do that if you see something in the kingdom of God, not to puff that person up, but to bring glory to God, if you see something, say something. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Father in heaven, Thank you, thank you that you are an encourager. Lord, thank you that your Holy Spirit, the helper, is an encourager. Thank you, Lord, that we have no reason to be discouraged because of Jesus Christ. And now, Lord, as we have received so much encouragement from you, Lord, may we take this command seriously and do whatever it takes to build one another up and to encourage one another in Jesus' name, help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.